Our scripture text this evening comes from Exodus chapter 27. We'll begin in verse 20, and we'll be reading through chapter 28, verse 43. So it's really just the last couple of verses from chapter 27 and then the entirety of chapter 28. But before reading from the Word of the Lord, let's go to our God in prayer together. Our Lord, we give You thanks for this wondrous privilege that we have again to gather and to worship, to sing praises to Your name, and to hear now from Your Word of truth. May we receive this Word with faith and eagerness and love. May, through the work of Your Spirit, we lay this Word deep within our hearts, cherishing it, treasuring it, delighting all the more in the wonder of knowing Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the lights, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful who have, whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive, they shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen." And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, of purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. You shall take two onyx stones, and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to its settings. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod you shall make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. The second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, an agite, and an amethyst. And a fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. 
You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cord of pure gold, and you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold, and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And you shall put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree, and so attach it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breastpiece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue, so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod, so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel at the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die." You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord." You shall weave the coat in checkerwork of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty, and you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, let's remember that this portion of God's Word here in the book of Exodus from chapters 25 through 31 is the Lord meeting with Moses atop Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. And so, for seven chapters, as Moses is miraculously preserved by the hand of the Lord, he receives this verbal instruction that we're reading about here, and undoubtedly further revelation on the construction of the tabernacle its furnishings, and now the priesthood. Now, so far as we think about the order in which these things have been revealed to Moses, we have started with the interior and sort of worked our way outward, from the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place, then to the furnishings in the outer room, to the altar 
of bronze there in the courtyard along with the surrounding wall, the transportable wall. But now we sort of turn our attention back to the tabernacle itself as we begin to learn some important things about the nature of the priesthood. Now, some liberal scholars will say, well, this is all evidence of a redactor because the order here just doesn't make any sense. You go from talking about the bronze altar in the courtyard and now oil in the lampstand, clearly disjointed. But I would argue that it makes perfect sense as we understand the essential and central role of the priesthood. Because you see, the priest has two main functions in his role as mediator between God and man. He represents the Lord to the people as he comes from the holy place, bringing a word of confirmation to the people. And of course, he represents the people to the Lord as sacrifices are made and he moves inside of the tabernacle structure. And so, in this twofold direction, from the inside out, from the outside in, it helps the people of Israel and helps us to see the essential nature of the priesthood. And so, first, as we pick up where we left off last time, in these final two verses from chapter 27, we learn about the perpetual flame of the lampstand and really the first official mention of priestly duties. And so, this is our first point tonight, the priests tending to the burning flame or simply the perpetual flame. Now, you might remember we learned about the lampstand back in Exodus chapter 25. We learned that this lampstand or this menorah made from one solid piece of gold stood roughly five feet in height, meant to resemble a tree with seven branches and cups at the top of each one filled with oil and wicks, not only to give light to that outer room, but of course to shine that light downward upon that lower table of showbread, indicating that the Lord is both light and life. Light and life can only be found in a right relationship with Him. We then read here that the people of Israel are to make regular contributions of this pure, valuable olive oil for the perpetual burning of these lights. Now, this olive oil, because of its purity, would emit very little, if any, smoke at all. Now, obviously, olive trees are going to be hard to come by, especially in those years of wilderness wanderings. And I've wondered, well, where were the people? Remember, it's their responsibility clearly here to gather that oil and give it. Where would they get this oil? Well, perhaps they need to trade with traveling salesmen of oil as they come through the region or collect money to purchase such oil as it was needed. If nothing else, I think it keeps at the forefront of God's people the need to provide regular oil for the perpetual burning of this light. And then we learn that the priests are to tend to this lampstand all night long from evening to morning, keeping each cup filled with oil as they also tend to the wicks to keep the flames burning. And what a wonderful symbol of God's constant watchful care over His children, that He is present with them, never resting. It must have been of great comfort to the children of Israel to know that while they slept with their families in their tents, The priests were awake in shifts all night long, tending to the light, representing them before the Lord, praising God on their behalf, and undoubtedly offering prayers for the people, even in those darkest hours of night. 
And so these two verses at the end of chapter 27, again, not out of place at all, but serve as sort of a transition from the courtyard where all the children of Israel were permitted to gather back to the tabernacle structure in which only the priest could enter. And that brings us to the second main thing to see tonight, which is the nature of the priesthood. Now, there have been priestly functions prior to this in redemptive history, but with all the detail given here, clearly we are given instruction because we're moving into a new period of expansion and explanation of the office of priest. So, what are some of the things that we learn here about the nature of the priesthood? Well, notice this important statement from verse 1. These priests are to come from among the people. I always like to ask questions of the text as I'm reading it, thinking to myself, well, what would be the alternative? I suppose God could have had a separate sort of guru, an ascetic who had been living for 40, 50 years in a cave all by himself, preparing just for this moment in which he could be brought out and presented to the people as a holy man of God, untainted by all of the past experiences of Israel. Or perhaps Aaron, as the high priest, could have been set up on a ridge in sort of a tent-like palace above the people, like some sort of ancient celebrity, only coming down from his dwelling with his bodyguards and entourage when he would enter into the tabernacle. But instead, Aaron, the high priest, would live among them. They knew him. They would see him on a daily basis. He is like them, a sinner, in fact, in need of grace. Remember, the high priest needs to make atonement for his own sin before he can represent the people. And so it was clear to everyone that Aaron did not enter through his own morality or through his own efforts. Aaron has no more inherent holiness than any other member of the covenant community. But instead, it is through this process of consecration, through this process of purification and then investiture as he is clothed with those priestly garments that he was then set apart as the only one permitted to enter into that most holy place. But here's the vital lesson. One from among them is needed to represent them. But the glaring problem is that the high priest himself is a sinner. Atonement must be made for his sin. No matter how clean, how radiant, how spotless his clothes might be, beneath it all is a heart that is in need of cleansing and rebirth, just like everyone else. And so the first thing that we learn about the nature of the priesthood is that he is from among the people. And we also learn that this priesthood is not just open to anyone, but is relegated to the tribe of Levi. Only the Levites could perform these priestly responsibilities. Now, just as Aaron is no more holy than anyone else, the tribe of Levi is no more holy than any other tribe of Israel. Levi, the son of Jacob, does not have the greatest of reputations. You can think back to Genesis chapter 34, when Levi and his brother Simeon misused the covenant sign of circumcision upon their enemies, the Shechemites, and while the men were recovering from their circumcision, they were slaughtered by Levi and Shechem. It's one of those, son, those, those stories that your sons like you to read to them at night. 
At the end of Jacob's life, when the families are all reunited at the end of Genesis in chapter 49, and Jacob is going through each one of his sons and pronouncing a prophetic blessing upon them, he says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. In their anger, they killed men. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel." Now, that prophecy finds its fulfillment in at least two significant ways. In Exodus chapter 32, when Moses finally comes down from Mount Sinai and the people are reveling as they're worshiping the golden calf, Moses calls, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And it is the sons of Levi who rally to his side. And Moses tells them to bear the sword of judgment against their brothers and some 3,000 men are killed on that day by the Levites. And then later when Israel comes into the land of promise, the Levites, of course, do not receive their own particular portion, segment of land, but are scattered throughout the nation as they perform their priestly duties. And so the nature of the Levitical priesthood is one of zeal for the holiness of God as they will be dispersed among the Israelites. So, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Moses is from the tribe of Levi, but clearly his role fits more into that of one of prophets, meeting with God and bringing the word of the Lord to the people. Though, of course, Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel after that golden calf incident because Aaron has yet to be consecrated as priest. Unless there be any confusion when we know that the people of Israel will grumble about those who are appointed as priests, the word of the Lord is clear. It is Aaron and his sons, his sons listed by name. Though in Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, in their presumption, offer that unauthorized fire to the Lord and are struck dead. And so here is the nature of the priesthood. From among them, from the tribe of Levi, and yet at the same time distinct from the people. And this is made clear in the garments that they're told to wear, which brings us to our third point from the text, which is the nature of the priestly garments. Now, we'll see this more in a moment, but it's important for us to note that the bulk of the instruction for the priestly garments has to do with the clothing of the high priest. From verses 3 all the way through 39, it's all about Aaron, the high priest, and his garments. It's not until we get to verse 40 that we read about what the rest of the priests should wear, and even then the instruction is very minimal compared to the high priest. Now, that would be an important thing to to tuck away that we'll return to later. But before we look at the garments of the high priest, we want to think about the nature of these things. And so notice that both in verse 2 and in verse 40, these garments are described in three ways as holy, for glory, and for beauty or for splendor. So, here are three adjectives used to describe the purpose of these garments. Holy, that is, set apart for sacred, special use. Glory has to do with dignity and weightiness. There is gravity to the priestly office. As we'll see, it's vital to approach the Lord only as the Lord has prescribed. 
And finally, beauty. For the most part, clothing in the ancient Near East would be relatively bland in color. And so the refrain, you may have noticed, of these garments that they are to be made of gold, blue, purple, scarlet yarn with fine twined linen. We read that in verses 5, 6, 8, and 15. That is the exact same language that was used to describe the material of the tabernacle. And so clearly the high priest is to be identified with that holy space. You see, it is the Lord God alone who inherently embodies these three attributes, holy, glorious, and beautiful. And the only way to approach Him is to be adorned with holiness, glory, and beauty. John Calvin writes, the holy garments were not only supposed to conceal His faults, but also to represent the incomprehensible adornment of all virtues. So these are garments that are meant to show the wonder and the splendor of the Lord. And don't let this important point slip you by. Holiness, glory, and beauty, these are things that are needed to come into the presence of the Lord. Now, clearly, these are not everyday garments. These are not, I've got to go run some errands. These are the only things that are clean. I'm going to put on my high priestly garments to run to Sam's Club type of thing. These are clothes that are to be worn only when the high priest is performing his prescribed priestly responsibilities. And once the high priest takes these things upon himself, he is constantly, continually representing the people. Everything that he does while wearing these clothes is in a representative role. And so if we were to sort of sum up this point, three important things that we could say about the priestly garments. The emphasis is upon the high priest. They are for the purpose of holiness, glory, and beauty, and they are only for priestly duties as he represents the people. And as he's wearing them, there is constant representation. But let's look a little more closely at some of the priestly garments. And this is our fourth point, priestly attire. At first, we learn that the priest is to wear this ephod, which would be like a sleeveless vest or, a, or an apron that would go from his shoulders down to his waist. And it would be the outermost garment to what he would wear. And it was covered, again, with this beautiful colored embroidery meant to mirror the material of the tabernacle. And attached to this outer garment and visible to everyone else were these two onyx stones attached to each of his shoulder, set in radiant gold. And upon those stones were engraved the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, six on each stone in order of birth. And so everywhere the priest goes, he represents the people. He carries the people, as it were, with him upon his shoulders as he enters into the tabernacle. Back in Exodus chapter 19, the Lord says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. It's the same language that we use, for, or that we read rather, for the new covenant people in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. And so the entire nation of Israel is to be holy unto the Lord. They are to be a kingdom of priests to Him, clearly indicating the representative union nature that the people share with the high priest. 
As we move along, we then learn about the high priest's breastpiece or breastplate, as some translations read. Now, this was not a plate per se, but was a square inch of fabric, about nine inches on either side, with the same beautiful colors embroidered upon it. Now, this garment, this breast piece, was separate from the ephod, but on top of it, held in place with golden chains, both around the waist and from the shoulders. We read all these details about clasps of gold and chains of gold and so forth. And upon the breast piece were twelve stones set in four rows of three, again, of course, representing the twelve tribes of Israel. And I think it's noteworthy that these colorful, valuable gems were actually found in the Garden of Eden. Like, don't go to Genesis to find that, but you actually read that in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13. We find these stones again in Revelation 21 in the description of the heavenly city. And so, the only other time in Scripture in which we find these stones listed, sort of clustered together, is in these two realms where there is no sin. And like the onyx stones upon his shoulders, each precious gem upon his chest was engraved with the name of a tribe of Israel. Truly, the people of God are his treasured possession, precious to him. And so, just as the high priest bore the nation upon his shoulders as he mediated on their behalf, so now the high priest bears the nations upon his chest really upon his heart, as we read in verse 29, as they are always with him wherever he goes. And this breastpiece contains something else. Picture it sort of folded along the bottom with a small pouch in which there were these two objects, this Urim and Thummim. Now, there have been all sorts of speculation about what these objects actually were. Are these polished stones of some kind, perhaps other forms of valuable gems, holy dice, polished pieces of wood. We just don't know for certain. We don't need to know exactly what they were, and we don't need to know exactly how they were used in order for us to understand how the people of God turned to them. We look at other places of Scripture, and what we learn there is basically this is a way for the people of God to discern the will of God on important, critical matters that involved the entire nation of Israel. For example, whether they should go into battle or not. As a one plausible theory is that a question, a yes or no type question would be posed to the high priest, and he would pray to the Lord asking Him for guidance and reach into the pouch and pull out one of these objects to indicate whether, yes, they ought to do this, or no, they ought to refrain. And we might think to ourselves, wouldn't that be nice to have our own sort of set of holy dice that we could roll for all the decisions in life? But God, of course, doesn't work that way. He doesn't work that way now, and He actually didn't work that way back then. It's not as though God told every family unit to get their own Urim and Thummim. This was just the high priest, and it was only for questions that involved the entire nation on certain special occasions, as it were. But as desirable as it might have been for us, for them as well, to have sort of a quick mechanism to discern the will of God, 
we actually have something much better. We have the completed Word of God, which is sufficient for all of life and godliness. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit who helps us to understand that Word, and we have the benefit of wise counsel from others whom the Lord has put into our lives. Now, the Bible, of course, doesn't give you private information on which job you should take or who you should marry or where you should live, but God's Word certainly gives you principles to apply His Word in sanctified wisdom to answer those types of questions. But His Word does reveal His will to us in many places. Think of Romans 12, 2. As your mind is renewed by Word and Spirit, you may better be able to discern the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. The will of God is your sanctification. Control your body. Give yourself in holiness to the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, here's the will of God. Respect those over you. Live at peace with others and be patient with them. Do good to one another. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. And so I think the application here is clear. The more that we study God's Word, The more that we learn His Word, the more we are thinking God's thoughts after Him and therefore growing in wisdom and discernment, for His Word is clear, telling us how to live for Him, how to know Him, and how to glorify Him. And then we learn that the high priest is to wear a robe, all of blue, under the ephod. And along the hem of his robe are embroidered pomegranates and gold bells along the hem. Let's think of each of those briefly. First, the pomegranates. I have this vivid memory when I was a kid of our neighbor who had a pomegranate tree. We used to love the low-hanging fruit that would come over on our side of the wall. We always thought it would be a great treat until you peel it open, and it's full of maybe a hundred juicy seeds, a lot of work for a little bit of a payoff. But of course, the pomegranate juice could be used then as now for various beverages or cooking. But why images of pomegranates on the hem of the garment? Perhaps this is a symbol of blessing and prosperity, pointing ahead to the rest that awaits them in the land of promise. Or perhaps this is merely to add to the ascetic beauty of the garments of the high priest. Now, we're told in verse 35 that the sound of the bells would be heard from the outside as the priest moves about in the tabernacle on behalf of the people, and he does this so that he does not die. What is all this about? Well, first, here's what this doesn't mean. Now, we don't know where this came from, but nowhere in Scripture… Is there instruction given on the notion of a rope tied to the ankle of the high priest to pull him out if his bells stopped ringing because the Lord struck him dead? Most of you have probably heard something along those lines at some point in your Christian life. But just imagine for a moment, what if the high priest were there ministering on behalf of the people, offering prayers to the Lord, perhaps so full of delight and focus upon God in prayer that he forgets to move? and is pulled out all of a sudden on his face with this rope that drags him out. I mean, this simply did not happen. This was never part of God's instruction. And so, if you have that image in your mind, you can go ahead and remove that. 
Now, certainly there is an appropriate level of fear and reverence as one is to come into the presence of the Lord. If one presumes to come before the Lord in the wrong manner, the consequences may be death. Because as we saw last time, the right person must come the right way to enter into the presence of the Lord. But the Lord God is the one who has initiated all of this instruction. He is the one who has done this for the purpose of fellowship and communion through the provision of the high priest. And I think it would be contrary to the nature of God for the priest to be constantly on edge that God would strike him dead if he had done things the way in which the Lord had prescribed. So I think it's better to understand these bells as both a reminder to the high priest that he is entering into the presence of the great king. Even in our own time, no one enters into the presence of a monarch unannounced. It would be presumptuous to do so. That's an act of humility to announce one's coming into the presence of the great one. And as others outside hear the ringing of these bells as the high priest moves around in the holy place, they can be comforted of this activity on their behalf. And perhaps there's an appropriate longing on their part to be there themselves, to have the wonder of this blessing. Well, another item of clothing to touch on for a moment is the headpiece, a turban with a gold plate attached to the front with this inscription that reads, Holy to the Lord. You can think of this inscription, holy to the Lord, as a, as a type of password for entrance into the presence of God. Vern Poitras points out that the high priest is a kind of vertical replica of the tabernacle. His garments correspond to the curtains of the tabernacle, and his headband, holy to the Lord, corresponds to the most holy place. He is a human being clothed with the majesty of heaven. But majestic as he is, Poitras notes, he is not majestic enough because, again, of the need that he has for purification himself. And we see a wonderful picture of that in Zechariah chapter 3. Joshua, the high priest, was supposed to appear, appear in those radiant garments as he represented the people, but instead he was clothed in filthy attire really representing the filthy nature of our sin. And not only was Joshua filthy, but the evil one was there accusing him before God. Remember, it's a dangerous thing to presume to come into the presence of the Lord without being holy and righteous. In fact, at this moment in the devil's accusation, he is not wrong. Joshua does deserve to die as the high priest, he represents the people, and they deserve to die because they are just as filthy as he. And so, all of humanity really is lost, guilty before God. But Joshua didn't die there in Zechariah. Instead, those filthy clothes were taken from him, and he was clothed with righteous robes. God alone could remove that defilement and could clothe him with holiness. And it's all of grace. And now Joshua in Zechariah 3 is holy to the Lord, not a holiness that he has produced, but the holiness that God requires is a holiness that God provides. But there's more there in Zechariah. 
In chapter 3, verse 5, it tells us that a clean turban is placed upon his head. It is this turban that reads, holy to the Lord. It is a declaration of righteousness that from head to toe, holiness must come from the Lord. Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with His garments of salvation. He has covered me with His robes of righteousness. And finally, not just the high priest, but all of the priests are to wear these undergarments. Now, that might seem a little strange to talk about underwear in the midst of all of these other beautiful, radiant, precious, valuable garments. But you see, this is to set them apart from the priests of pagan nations who would perform their rites unclothed. To be nude and to be proud about it is to call God a liar. It's to claim that there's nothing wrong with us when in fact we need a clothing that only He can provide. And so in every detail of His clothes, there is beauty, there is glory, and there is holiness conveyed. To approach God and come before Him requires this dignity and honor and holiness, a posture of humility and reverence. For without holiness, no one can see the Lord. And so, what do we learn from these garments, and how does all of this point us to our great high priest? Well, this is our final point briefly this evening, lessons that direct us to the Lord Jesus, lessons that point us to Christ. Now, the reason why the eternal Son of God had to come in flesh if we are to be saved from our sin is because we need someone from among us to represent us. We read in Hebrews 5, every high priest is chosen from among men to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And as the high priest in the line of Aaron was to gently minister in awareness of his own weakness, even in Christ Jesus we have one who knows our weakness, who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Now, while Jesus never wore the high priestly Levitical garments, this is because Jesus is of a greater order of priests. He is the great King, and His holiness is not in the form of mere external vestments, but His holiness is down to the very core of His person. And what does Jesus do as high priest, as He represents us? Our shorter catechism teaches us that as priest, Jesus offers Himself as a sacrifice to satisfy justice. He reconciles us to God, and He continues to make intercession for us. And so, three things notice that Jesus does as high priest. Satisfaction reconciliation, and intercession. I'll keep those in mind for a moment. Think back to what we read from Exodus 28. In the description of those priestly garments, there were actually reasons that were given for those pieces of clothing. Three reasons given for those garments that point to what Jesus does as our representative. 
And those three reasons are remembrance, judgment, and guilt. Verse 12, those onyx stones upon the shoulders of the high priest were stones of remembrance, corresponding to Jesus' work of intercession. Verse 15, this is a breastpiece of judgment, getting at the work of satisfaction, of justice. Verse 38, the inscription on the front of the turban is holy to the Lord. This comes as the high priest bears the guilt that the people deserve as Jesus reconciles us with God. So you see, when Jesus suffered and died in our place and took that guilt, it was as though Jesus were in some ways the opposite of Aaron. Aaron was adorned with outward beauty, but he was in need of inward cleansing because of his own sin. Jesus was not adorned with outward garments, but in fact looked like one who was defiled. And yet in his entire person he remained perfect and holy, obedient to his Father in heaven all the way to the very end. Jesus was judged in our place. Jesus was reckoned as guilty. And now by faith we bear that inscription, holy to the Lord. And we have this amazing and wonderful comfort of His remembrance. Think again of the place of that inscription, upon the high priest's shoulders and upon His heart. When our Savior went to the cross, He took us upon His shoulders. He bore the weight of our guilt and shame, and our names are engraved, engraved upon the palms of His hands. And even more, He carries us close to His heart as He continues to intercede on our behalf. And just like the priests who tended all night long to the light of the lampstand, Jesus never stops in His wondrous prayers for us. And think of this comfort of remembrance. There is no way that Aaron would have known all of the names of the people of Israel, let alone would he know their deep needs and the burdens that they they carry Michael Barrett writes, we are forever on His heart. Those He represents and presents before the throne of God are precious to Him, and with tender thoughts toward them, He intercedes on their behalf. Jesus truly knows all of our needs, and He is faithful. He knows our weakness and gives us strength. He guides and directs us as we seek to discern His will and live for His glory. He knows our defilement, and He cleanses us. He knows the deep need within our hearts, and He forgives as He atones for even the most vile of sins. And the place of those stones, again, upon the shoulders for strength and upon the heart for tenderness, this too finds its fulfillment in Christ Jesus, for He has infinite power to hold us, to carry us, and preserve us all the way to our heavenly home. And Jesus has coupled with that perfect tenderness as He cares for that, for us. Jude chapter 24, He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Hebrews 7, 24, 
He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. As we close, listen to these thoughts from A.W. Pink. Because of legal and vital union with him, his holiness is ours. Oh, Christian, look away from yourself with your 10,000 failures and fix your eye upon that golden plate, holy to the Lord. Behold, in the perfections of your great high priest, the measure of your eternal acceptance with God. Christ is our righteousness as well as our sanctification. Christ is our righteousness as well as our sanctification. May the Lord be pleased to work such righteousness and sanctifying grace in the lives of His people. Amen.